If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Well, church, this morning we start a a summer series of messages called Our Future Glory, which is going to deal with all kinds of things dealing uh, with uh, the future here on earth, what God has in store for our earth, what he has in store for us both here on earth and in heaven and I'm looking, and we start that this morning. Uh, This uh, message has kind of been percolating, these messages have been percolating for a while, really for a couple of years. We went through a a time, a season it seemed, where uh, God called home several people in our church, and these are always times when people begin to ask questions about heaven uh, and about what is to come. Uh, Just recently, I had two different conversations about heaven. One was with a Christian, and it became very clear that all the ideas that were being put forth from this person had been greatly influenced by touched by an angel or by uh, books from children who uh, had died and gone to heaven and come back to tell about their experiences, and very little of it was instructed by Scripture. Uh, another one was with a skeptic who um, he expressed a sentiment that I find is a common one among Christians, and apparently so did John Eldridge, because he put it and refers to it in one of his books. He writes, nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever, that's it, that's the good news. And then we sigh and we feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find the life, what life we can. There's all kinds of theories and ideas in Christianity and outside of Christianity about our future, about heaven, and what it will happen on earth before that we spend eternity with God. There's ideas like soul sleep and purgatory and how uh, we are going to be, in, you know, spend all of eternity wearing something that looks like a big adult depends, sitting on clouds, playing harps, you know, having these eternal church services. You know, how do you get to heaven? You go out past Pluto and hang a left and don't stop for a while, right? All kinds of ideas, you know. Dogs go to heaven, cats don't go to heaven. There may be truth in that one. I'm not sure yet, right? Um, but they're all out there. There's even a bias 
There's a bias that has grown up about heaven, a not-so-subtle message that we ought to just ignore it or spend our time more productively studying other doctrines of the Bible or being involved in other spiritual activities. Supposedly, thinking too much about heaven is dangerous for Christians. The last thing that we want, if we aren't careful, and the last thing that we ever want to happen to us is become so heavenly-minded that we are of no... You got it. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you are of no earthly good. So for the next several weeks, guys, we are going to dig into this uh, idea. We're going to dig into the scriptures. We're going to see what God says about what is to come and about heaven and our future glory. And I want to warn you, you may have some ideas that you're carrying around like that Christian or that skeptic that as we get into scriptures, it's going to challenge you and stretch you, but that's okay. Right? I intend for us to address many of the popular uh, misconceptions about what is in store for us both here on earth and in heaven. But this morning, I want us to start this series of messages addressing this negative connotation that to be heavenly-minded is to be of no earthly good. Right? Now, if someone means by that that the last thing that we need here on earth are people who are completely disengaged and disinterested and ignore the world around us and they justify it through religious sounding, heavenly oriented platitudes, I could not agree more with that objection. And by the way, that is not what the Bible encourages at all. The opposite of this common cliche is actually what the Bible teaches us. This is what we see in the scriptures, that heavenly-minded Christians are good for this world, and they are good for the world to come. We know this is true. For our text this morning explicitly commands us, God commands us in this passage to be heavenly-minded, and God would not command something that was not good for us, that was not good for the world, that was not good for His kingdom. So we need more. We need more, not fewer, Christians who are heavenly-minded. And this passage in Colossians helps us to understand why this is the case. Why it's important that all of us who follow Jesus Christ are heavenly-minded Christians. The first reason is in verse 1. We're going to walk through these verses almost phrase by phrase, especially in the first four verses that we're going to do this. And the first one is in verse 1, heavenly-minded Christians actively participate in the current ministry of Christ. Heavenly-minded Christians actively participate in the current ministry of Christ. Verse 1 says, if then, and the if here is actually since, since you have been raised with Christ. He's talking to Colossian Christians, citizens of Colossae. False teachers have come into their church. They have turned their church upside down. They have filled their minds with all kinds of false and erroneous spiritual teachings. 
And so Paul is addressing this, helping them to see the sufficiency of Christ. And if you go all the way back into chapter 2, around verse 8, and this verse 1 of chapter 3 is kind of concluding some extensive teaching where he teaches them and tells them, you have trusted in Christ, and Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Remember, Colossians, you received him, you've been identified with his death and resurrection in baptism like we did a few moments ago. You've been made alive in him. You've had your sins forgiven and nailed to the cross through him. He died to address these false religions and our efforts at self-righteousness. And he tells the Colossians, you have been made righteous in Christ and accepted by God because you are in him. Since this is the case, he says in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ, right? This is who you are. In verse 20 of chapter 2, he actually asked them, if you've died to the elemental things of this world, why would you live as if you are still alive to it? Makes no sense, is the point that he's getting here. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Diligently pursue, actively, consistently, aggressively go after the heavenly. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Where Christ is. Heaven is where Jesus literally is. So it is infinitely reasonable for us to seek the heavenlies. It is infinitely logical and rational for us to be heavenly minded. To seek Jesus is to focus on the heavenly. To focus on the heavenly is to experience the current ministry of Jesus Christ, to be in communion and fellowship with him. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. As Paxson mentioned a few moments ago, today is Ascension Sunday. 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven and he's exalted by God. What does that mean? Exalted by God. He ascended into heaven and is exalted by God. Well, let me answer that by giving you a pop quiz. Okay? Ready for it? It's a one-question pop quiz. Can't get easier than that. Okay? Here's the quiz question. What verse in the Old Testament is quoted the most in the New Testament. I didn't say it was an easy quiz, okay? I just said it was a one-question quiz, sorry. All right, what verse in the Old Testament is quoted the most in the New Testament? Do you think you know? Here it is, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You will find this verse quoted in the Gospels. You'll find it quoted in Romans. You'll find it in other portions of Paul's writings. You'll find Peter quoting it. You'll find John alluding to it. The author of Hebrews refers to it. Peter, in that first sermon on Pentecost Sunday, we looked at it a few weeks back when we were covering one of the goals of our church vision of seeing new families, new generations of believers, what we saw this morning taking place. 
And in that message, we focused in on Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, right? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and this promise is for you and for your children, right? That, that was the portion of his message. But right before that sermon, Peter right before that portion of the sermon, Peter quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. Here's what he says back in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and that of that we are all witnesses. Remember, he's speaking to the Israelites who had crucified Jesus. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, here we go, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, so this passage of Scripture is, is getting at a very, very important truth. That Christ ascended means that he entered as the perfect God-man into the throne room of heaven itself and was crowned the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When it says that he's seated at the right hand of God, God is spirit. God does not have a literal right hand. This is an ancient expression that means that Jesus is sitting in the seat of all cosmic authority. As he says to the disciples with the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. How do we know this is true? Because he ascended and is now seated at the right hand of God. Yet, as the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, he is also our high priest, the perfect God-man who resides in the throne room of heaven, interceding for us and serving as our advocate before the Father. We read a few moments ago from the Heidelberg Catechism, which so beautifully describes the current ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 2, Peter, or Paul says, because of this fact, that Jesus is the ascended Lord, we obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I mean, think about this for just a moment. We have a high priest who is intimately familiar with all of our struggles, of all of our pain, our wounds, what it is like to walk this planet, what it is like to live in a fallen world. We have this very human, perfect human high priest in heaven himself, interceding and advocating on our behalf before God. But he isn't just any human. He is the perfect human who is also the perfect God, the king of all kings the Lord of all lords, the one who resides over everything and all the powers of heaven, all the powers at earth are under his command, which means whatever you are facing, whatever issue, whatever obstacle, whatever struggle and problem that is plaguing you this morning as the sovereign king of heaven over the powers of everything that is, he has the means to address whatever it is that is occurring to you. And he has the love for us that he will address what is occurring to you, what you are experiencing it, and he will address it in alignment with his cosmic plan 
and design for your life and for the glory of his kingdom. That is the exalted Lord. Now, let me tell you something. We, we could spend an entire message or more on just this one element of what we're talking about here in the ascension. So, well, I, but I don't have time for that. So, I'm going to encourage you in two ways. First, after the service, not during the service, okay, not during the sermon, I want you to go out to Google, and I want you to punch in our worship pastor's name, Paxson Jean Cake, right? And then follow that up with two more words, gospel coalition, not Paxson Jean Cake, what has he ever done wrong in his life? No. Paxson Jean Cake, Gospel Coalition. And here's what you're going to find about the second link there in Google. I know some of you are already doing it. I can see your heads down, right? You're going to find a great article that uh, Paxson wrote several years ago for the Gospel Coalition that is a, a wonderful place to start and helping you to understand the significance of the ascension. I also want to give you a quote from N.T. Wright from his book, Surprised by Hope. As he, as he helps us to understand the importance of the ascension. He says, what we are encouraged to grasp precisely through the ascension itself is that God's space and ours, heaven and earth, in other words, are, though very different, not far away from one another. Nor is talk about heaven simply a metaphorical way of talking about our own spiritual lives. God's space and ours interlock and intersect in a whole variety of ways, even while they retain, for the moment at least, their separate and distinct identities and roles. One day, as we saw in the last chapter, they will be joined in a quite new way, open and visible to one another, married together forever. The ascension points us to this reality. As one writer says, to seek those things which are above is to daily hold fast to Christ as the center and the source of all of our joys. Heavenly-minded Christians actively participate in the current ministry of Christ. Christ becomes more real to them. Secondly, from verse 2, heavenly-minded Christians continually recalibrate their lives to what is true and fulfilling. Set your mind on things that are above, he begins verse 2 with. And one of the reasons that this command is given is the natural inclination of our heart is not to set our, things, our minds on things above. The natural inclination of our heart is to set our minds and focus on the earthly, not the heavenly. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says we are to renew our minds so that we can worship God, so that we can know God, and so that we can know His will for our lives. Heavenly-minded Christians are pursuing a renewed Christ-like mind. This mind knows and submits to the will of Christ. This mind has His will governing it and directing it and being the directing force of the life. Now, the tense of this verb, and in fact of both of these verses, is continuous present activity. 
We understand why this has to be the case. This is not a one-off deal that we do, and now we've checked that box. This is a daily, consistent activity of our lives, and we understand why this must be a continual work of God's grace in our lives. All of us have experienced, we live with the tension that we are a redeemed self that is housed in a very broken earthen vessel. And that's why the action is continual. That's why the encouragement is set yourself after this continually, aggressively, consistently pursue this type of heavenly mind. So what does it mean to set your heart or set your mind on things that are above? At the very least, it means that we will view our lives against the backdrop of eternity, living for the things of this world will no longer be the driving, motivating force in our lives. Now, the temptation will always be there, and that is why we are to focus on what is real and the location of our real life, which is heaven. This world, this verse is communicating to us, it matters, but it only matters in its most basic understanding against the backdrop of the real, eternal world, the heavenlies. And we're going to dig into that in weeks ahead. The point here, right? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The point here is not that we ignore what is going on around us. He's not saying that we aren't to be concerned with what goes on here at earth. To be heavenly minded doesn't mean that we aren't engaged with our community. It doesn't mean that we don't care about what took happen in Virginia Beach this week. It means we care very much. It doesn't mean that we ignore the things of this life that are bringing pain and devastation. It doesn't mean that we just turn a blind eye to the sin that is in our community, to the injustice that has taken place. It doesn't mean this at all when it says to set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The point here is that we don't find our identity. We don't find our security. We don't find our righteousness and our acceptance in the things that motivate and propel those who are not heavenly minded. We don't find it in those same places. The way we view ourselves is determined by what God says about us, not what our past sin or our present woundedness or our present struggles or our present shame say about us. Not at all. We are to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. What are the earthly things that he is warning us against? Certainly in chapter 2, he unpacks this. It's immoral, sensual things that we are tempted with in this world. It is the false religious practices that are encouraged upon us through man-made righteousness and religion. Certainly the scriptures teach us that it includes the pursuit of wealth and relying upon that as our source of security and comfort. It is that pursuit of worldly honor in order to give us a sense of significance and acceptance. These are the earthly things that we turn our backs on, pursuing these things. The point here he's getting at, pursuing these things, Christian, this is beneath who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. 
turning to these earthly things contradicts everything about who we have been made into in Jesus Christ. It's a denial of who it's, we are princes and princesses of the king of the universe. Why would we ever live like paupers? It's not who we are. Not at all. Heavenly-minded Christians continually recalibrate their lives to what is true and fulfilling. Thirdly, verse 3. Heavenly-minded Christians experience the power of the gospel for holiness and mission. Verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What do you mean I've died? In other words, if you are in Christ, man-made religious requirements... The solutions that pop psychology offers for satisfaction, all of these false ideas, they are dead to you. you know, we've all seen probably at one point or another a, a mafia movie and somebody, the, you know, the, 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 what's the guy called? The uh, mafioso, what's his name? Uh, Godfather, that's it, I drew a blank there. I mean, I've seen, the Godfather turns to somebody and he goes, you're dead to me. These things have no more power, control, except you're no longer in my realm of cognitive. I just know you're dead to me. He says, these things, you have died. These things that motivate other people and mankind and humanity in general that control and propel their lives, we are dead to them. These false messages, even sin itself, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, has no more power over us because we have died with Christ. And by dying with Him, we are hidden with Him. What is that getting at? That's getting at security. In other words, because we are hidden in Christ, our security is anchored in Him and Him alone. Our satisfaction is found in Him. Our identity is found in Him. Our comfort is found in Him. Our life is in Him. And to be heavenly minded at its most basic understanding of this phrase and this expression is to continually preach this gospel truth to ourselves. And we have to preach it to ourselves continually throughout the day because this redeemed self is housed in a fallen earthen vessel. And our flesh and this world that we live in screams and shouts an exactly opposite message than what is actually true about ourselves. I mean, I want you to think about this for a second, church. This means that we can stop working and striving and seeking to earn God's acceptance. We already have it. We do not have to wonder if we have God's approval. We already have it. We don't have to wonder if, if I lived this way or if I didn't live this way, does God love me less? No, we have all of the God, Father's love bestowed upon us because we are in Jesus Christ. So we can rest. We can rest. We don't have to be on the, 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 you know, the little hamster wheel of human performance, always seeking to get acceptance with our Creator, living in fear of whether or not we are doing enough to have His blessing on our lives. This is saying we already have everything that we need. It's been given to us in Christ. We have His acceptance. We have His blessings. So take a chill pill. Relax. 
Enjoy your life in Jesus Christ. Even the life that he gives you here on earth with all of the blessings that are here on earth that he provides, relax, enjoy it. Your heavenly Father loves you. Through our ascended Lord, we have God's everlasting, eternal approval. Think of what the worst thing you did this week. Think of the most egregious sin that you committed that hurt your own heart. Think about it for a second. It might even bring shame and guilt into your heart and mind this morning. But can I say that no matter how egregious that sin was, if you are a child of God, that did not diminish God's approval of you one iota. Not one little bit did it make God to say, oh, look at him. Not at all. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hey, we're hidden in him. Our current life is secure in Christ, and thankfully, so is our future one. We have a glorious future. In the weeks ahead, we're going to pack, unpack this. We're going to get into what happens and where do we go when we die, and what is that place like, and you know, where do we live for all of eternity, and what does God have in store for us? We're going to get into all of that. But what we see here is that one important word, glory. You can guarantee it, it's awesome. Uh, John, the Apostle John, he says a lot about this. Two of the verses, two of my favorite verses on this subject, and this is all we're going to really say about it this morning, leaving some you know, things for the weeks ahead. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him. This is my life verse. Um, so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And in chapter two, 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This Lord, who is your life, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore... Put to death, therefore. That word, therefore, is important. It's pointing us back to everything that has taken place, everything that he has said about who we are in Christ, everything that he's been teaching us about our identity and our security and our approval with God through Jesus Christ. In light of all of these glorious truths, we have the greatest motivation and incentive imaginable to put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And why should you do it? It's because of who you are in Jesus Christ. Put these things to death, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Do not lie to one another, verse 9 says, and you see the list of things. It says, put these away from you. To be heavenly minded is of no earthly good. How absurd. How absurd. The practical outworking of heavenly mindedness is a desire 
and a commitment of our lives to live like Christ and for Christ. Heavenly-minded Christians want to be holy. They want to honor their Lord, not in order to get God's approval, but because God has already given us His approval. There is a motivating force here in the gospel that heavenly-minded Christians pursue holiness because they recognize they already have every good and perfect gift given to them from the Father of lights. One final idea this morning. Verse 12, we actually didn't read that this morning. I wanted to read it for you. In verse 12, we see that heavenly-minded Christians make our world a little more like heaven. Verse 12 starts with, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And the list goes on in this verse and the verses ahead of a beautiful, gracious, heaven-filled life. To be heavenly-minded is to be of no earthly good. Hogwash. Our world needs to come face-to-face with heaven's love, with heaven's humility, with heaven's kindness, with heaven's meekness. Heavenly-minded Christians are good for our earth. They're good for our society. Our world is changed when it comes face-to-face with the loving, humble, meek holiness that the Holy Spirit builds inside the life of a Christian. And as we are changed, 2 Corinthians Verse chapter 3 says, more and more into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that more and more of the glory of heaven itself breaks through into this earthly realm. Heavenly-minded Christians are infinitely important for the good of our world. Let me close out this sermon and that thought with two statements from two different Englishmen. They both lived in the 1900s. One was Pastor Dick Lucas. He wrote, The more we set our minds to consider the things above, the firmer the ground beneath our feet. Think about that for a minute. Actually, maybe you might need more than a minute to think about. So write it down. The more we set our minds to consider things above, the firmer the ground beneath our feet. The better life we have here on earth, the more effective we are as ambassadors of Jesus Christ here on earth, the more we see what's really going on around us and we understand the solution to these things, this occurs the more we set our minds and consider the things above. Final quotation comes from C.S. Lewis. In his great book, Mere Christianity, he brings out a beautiful point. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians 
have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Let me repeat that sentence. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Lord Jesus, do this work of grace in our midst. Help us, Father, to reject the false messaging even within Christian circles, perhaps authored by our enemy himself, that to be heavenly-minded is to be of no earthly good. Give us the grace that we need to seek you through our high priest who continually advocates before you on our behalf. Give us the grace we need, Lord Jesus, to be heavenly-minded and of infinite good for the world that we currently live in and for the world that is soon to come as one day you return and you finally complete what you started in your first advent. In your name we pray, dear Jesus. Amen.